Radcliffe. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 2. Continuing our series going through the book of Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 4 and just going through verse 5 this morning. Uh, continuing on where we left off a couple weeks ago in our Habakkuk series. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 4, says this. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Sailors in a storm have a lot of variables to consider. They have to think about the severity of the storm, their distance to land, how far away they are, the the type of boat they're in, the direction they're headed, their own skills and abilities along with their crew. But fundamentally... When the storm gets to a certain level of severity, when the storm gets so bad, they really only have two options. They can either sail actively with a specific strategy, a specific way to interact with the wind, to try to direct themselves, to try to make it through the storm. Or, if the storm is so bad, they can do what's called lying a hole. When you are lying a hole, you take down all the sails. You batten down the hatches. You fix the rudder and the wheel so that they won't move. You barricade yourself inside the boat. And then you simply float on the waves in the midst of the storm. At the storm's mercy. Allowing it to take you where it will. And hopefully to pass over you without sinking. God today in our text presents two diverging paths. Two options, really, with two diverging fates concerning what's about to happen to the nation of Judah. If we were to think of God's plans, the the Babylonians, the Chaldeans coming against that nation as a storm, you'd really have two options. The, The proud man who's actively sailing, trying to still impose his will over what's happening around him. Or from this text, you'd have the righteous man who's living by faith. He's functionally lying a hole in the midst of God's plans, trusting that in the midst of that storm, he'll be able to make it through to the other side. And while this isn't true for every storm, these two diverging paths have very clear and opposing fates in what's to come. In the coming storm of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians against the nation of Judah. So today we will see from these verses those two diverging fates, two diverging paths and two diverging fates in the face of God's plans. The first diverging path in faith that we see in our text today is that the proud receive their death. Those who are proud will receive death. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. God in this text is making a clear connection between pride and the unrighteous. In these verses, he's contrasting the the faithful who will receive life with the unfaithful who receive death. But instead of calling them the unfaithful, instead of calling them unbelievers, people outside of the nation of Israel, the shorthand he uses for the one headed toward death is the one who is puffed up. 
the proud one. The one who is living not by faith, but by his own pride. And to live by pride is to trust in yourself for all things. Pride and idolatry are very closely linked. And when you get down to it, these sins really are at the root of all the others. And I think that's why God is highlighting pride as the representation of the one who is headed for death in these verses. You see, when I have sinful anger, it's because my pride or something I worship has been attacked. When I lie, it's most often to preserve something I'm worshiping, likely myself. When I steal, it's because I've placed myself and my needs over and above any other ethical or moral code outside of myself. And the term God uses here is not a good one when he refers to the proud. The one who is puffed up. His soul is puffed up. He's not saying that they're large in stature. He's not saying that they're, they're jacked, that they're muscular. They're not filled. They're not dense all the way through. Puffed up like a blowfish. They're like Jerry Seinfeld in his puffy shirt. He's all puffed up. He looks like a pirate. He's ridiculous. These people are bloated. They're inflated. This same word is used in 1 Samuel to describe a tumor. That it is puffed up. The one who's puffed up isn't the name that you want God to give you. So the one living not by faith but by pride is therefore living in sin. He's trusting in himself for all things. And yet, even as he does so, he's not upright. His soul may be puffed up, but even his soul is not upright within him. He's not stable or straight. He's living according to his own moral fiber and being. He's trusting in himself for all things. And yet, even at the deepest part of who he is in his soul... He is not upright within himself. So by that, God is saying he doesn't have what it takes to save himself from the true calamity, from the judgment of God, which is on its way. Saying he's not upright. He's not righteous. How could he possibly stand before the God who is upright, who is righteous? And yet, because of that same pride, which makes him look so ridiculous and keeps him from any true standing, He's also cut off from the help of anything above or outside of himself. The pride which makes him not upright also keeps him from becoming upright. Even though he's drowning in his own self-righteousness, he thinks that he's still got this. So he doesn't need God. And therefore, he has no opportunity to be helped by the God who could give him life rather than death. The one who is puffed up here, he deserves our pity, not our envy. You see, to this point in Habakkuk, the prophet has been complaining that the wicked really seem to have it so great. They're prospering while the righteous ones are suffering. And the Babylonians, who are even more wicked, are seemingly going to win the day. They're going to come in and conquer Judah. It seems like to this point in Habakkuk that the wicked one is the one you want to be. The wicked one who gets all the stuff, all the blessings, it seems. Habakkuk hates how God's enemies are having their day in the sun. And here God begins to show Habakkuk that the very victory it appears they are winning is actually their undoing. The proud one. The one living by his own morals, his own code, his own power. We might be tempted to look at those people and wish that we had what they do. 
man, if only I had their money. If only I had that kind of sexual freedom. If only I had their societal acceptance. But his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. He's doomed. He's not the model to be followed. He's the cautionary tale that we should be avoiding. It may seem, it may feel like we're surrounded by wicked people who are prospering. But God is reminding us here. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when he begins to make the turn, he's reminding us here that what we see when we see that person is actually a house of cards. And that the God of the universe is about to shake the table it's laying on. The way of the puffed up soul ends in death. And it goes that way. It ends that way because the proud man is so easily deceived. Verse 5, moreover, wine is a traitor. Now, the the beginning of verse 5 is another instance instance in Habakkuk, like we've talked about a few times, where we're not quite sure what it's saying. The original Hebrew is hard to translate. It's unclear. The words it uses are rare. The context really isn't that helpful. And on top of all that, it's prophetic poetry. It's not like something that was super simple to begin with. But I think God here is making a connection, which will be picked up, Again, later in chapter 2, next week, whenever we get to that point, he's making a connection between the proud man, the one who's puffed up, and the way that that proud man tends to celebrate. He's trusting in himself. He is so sure of his standing that he is able to then turn to wine in celebration, thinking that he has nothing to fear. For him, it's party time. He's feeling good. He's on top of the world. Why not drink in excess? Why not drink until the point of being drunk? Why not surround yourself, drown yourself in wine? You're untouchable. Even in a drunken state, there's nothing anybody can do to you. You are the ruler of the world in your own eyes. Who could possibly mess with that? But God here is saying that the wine to which he turns, the drink from the cup he has chosen because of his pride, because of his arrogance, is actually part of his downfall. That very wine is a traitor. It isn't a cup of victory. It's not celebration. It's a final meal. What he thinks is going to be great wine is actually the cup of God's wrath that's going to be poured out on him. The proud man has been deceived, and really easily so. And that idea of God's wrath as a cup that will be poured out, that occurs all throughout Scripture. We saw Jesus in the garden, right before its crucifixion, ask God to remove the cup of God's wrath against the sins of God's people from Jesus. Psalm uh, Psalm 75, verses 6 through 8, say this, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So also the proud man shall drain to the dregs the cup of God's wrath, even as he drinks to his own power, his own favor. Do you see how easily deceived he is here? Do you see how dumb he ends up looking? He's celebrating in wine. He's actually, as he does so, though, drinking to his own demise. 
He's betrayed by the very cup he thought was his blessing. It's like a burglar in a Home Alone movie. Not only is his hair now on fire, but as he tries to put it out in the toilet bowl, it's actually filled with kerosene. The act itself was already demeaning and insane, and it's only gotten worse. No one who has reason to be so proud in reality would ever end up in this predicament. But for the one who's puffed up, what he's doing is he is receiving death from God. And so his mind is easily manipulated. And because of his status, he receives no rest. The rest of verse 5. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now again, it's hard to put the beginning of verse 5 together, but... I think what it's doing is it's showing us for whom the wine is a traitor. God is contrasting the the same group, the puffed up, the ones who are easily deceived, the arrogantly proud ones who are making their way toward death by death, and the faithful who will receive life. You see, the one who's proud is never at rest. How could he be? If all he has, he has by his own power by his own might, by his own strength, then it's up to him not only to achieve those things, to achieve that status, but also to maintain it, to hold on to it. When you are the king of the hill, you cannot rest. If you ever stop kicking down the other children trying to climb up, eventually you won't be the king of the hill anymore. That's why his greed is as wide as Sheol. That's why it's as wide as death. For him, these are the hunger games. He has to kill everyone in order for himself to live. The instant he stops, that just allows someone else to run past him. That's why he has to gather to himself all nations, to collect all peoples as his own. He's the arrogant man. He has to win. And we know God here is talking about the Babylonians because of that phrase, gathering all peoples to himself. It connects back to chapter 1 where Habakkuk had that very complaint that the Babylonians were collecting all men together like a dragnet, mercilessly killing nations forever by their own strength. So God's saying, yeah, Habakkuk, you bet he's gathering all peoples together. He has to. That's all he's got. The only reason he's so fast is because he's running from everyone else. The only reason he's so strong is because he has to fight everyone else. Without his strength, he's nothing. And you know what, Habakkuk? That's going to be his undoing. You see, they don't have the upright soul it takes to stand before me, the God of the universe. They don't have the wisdom that it takes to avoid their own fate. They don't have the power to gather me, the God of the universe, in their net. Their way ends in death. The way of the proud The way of the one who stands in opposition to God. The way of the one who trusts in his own power and his own might for his standing, for his righteousness. That way ends in death. Here there be monsters. This man proud in sin is going to get what is coming to him. And what is coming to him is the judgment of God which will result in his death because of his sin. Because of his pride. And we'll see more fully next week when God expounds on what his plans for the Babylonians 
what exactly his plans for them are. What exactly that death, that judgment is going to look like for these people who Habakkuk has said has been prospering. And God is saying, no, no, no. Their time is coming. They'll get there, Habakkuk. Just wait. The way of the proud ends in death. So hear me today. Your soul is not upright enough to save you. Your mind is not smart enough to avoid your fate. Your power is not strong enough to stand before the Lord. Doesn't matter how hard you try. Doesn't matter how little you rest. If you are on your own out there in the wilderness, if you're not a part of God's people, if you haven't been united to his church, if you haven't trusted in the God of the universe for your salvation, if you haven't come to the end of yourself, if you haven't gotten tired of the games, tired of the running, tired of all of your self-justifications, if you haven't come face to face with the idea that you are a sinner with no hope apart from Jesus Christ, if you haven't turned from your sin in repentance, if you haven't believed, if you haven't hoped and trusted in Christ and his sacrifice for your salvation, then these verses are just as about you as they are the Babylonians, as they are the Chaldeans. The way of the proud ends in death. And everyone who is not living moment by moment holding on to only the grace and mercy of God given to them through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, his sinless sacrifice, his perfect atonement, his glorious resurrection, his ascension into heaven where he now is reigning at the side of the Father. If you haven't done that, then you are living that same proud life. You are the one headed toward death. And the proud man receives only the death to which he is headed. But the righteous one here, he receives life. That's the other diverging path in faith that we can see this morning. The righteous receive God's life. Back to verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up, the proud one. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This phrase, this idea, this truth, that the righteous shall live by his faith, that is one of the most important sentences in the entire Bible. Not only is it central to Habakkuk, the the creed, the central encouragement of the whole book is that the righteous will live by his faith. But there are some scholars who would say that this one statement actually distills all of the Old Testament law down into it. All 600 commands, all 10 commandments... All three things the Lord requires of you. All of that has somehow been boiled down into these words. The righteous shall live by his faith. But perhaps because they are so pregnant with meaning, I think they're also kind of hard to say exactly what they mean. If the righteous lives by his faith, then how does one become righteous? By whose faith? In what? Is it a single one-time faith or is it faithfulness? Your Bibles may have a footnote there. What does it mean to live by faith? None of these questions are directly answered in the context of this text in Habakkuk. 
But I think we're able to get the meaning here, not only by the rest of the context of Habakkuk, the way we're able to read the whole book and then understand this phrase, but also by how the New Testament peels back some of those layers and shows us meanings that we may not have gotten if the Spirit didn't reveal them. But we know, even though we don't know the fullness of this phrase, we know for certain that the righteous lives by faith. Only because of the faithfulness of God. Without God's faithfulness, if God were not steadfast in love, if he were not faithful to his people, then none of the rest of this matters. The one who is righteous is only righteous before the righteous one. Whatever this life is, whatever that means, it only comes from the one who is the source of all life. No matter what faith or faithfulness you might have in or toward God, that really only counts. That really only is helpful if God is also faithful toward you. And I make this point because even as Habakkuk has been complaining, even as things have been looking pretty grim for God's people, their hope and here their life are still founded upon the God of steadfast And faithful love. The fact that the righteous shall live by his faith. That's based on the righteous and faithful giver of life. Who freely gives that life to his people. So before we get to how this works. What it means in context. Let us not forget the God upon which all of this is based. The righteous receive life by faith. Because of the faithfulness of God toward him. But the one who is righteous actually is righteous by his faith. See, faith here is both the evidence and the basis of his righteousness. Habakkuk has been complaining that the wicked are swallowing up the righteous people. So now God, in his answer to Habakkuk, is replying saying, Okay, Habakkuk, you want to know who the righteous ones are? You want to be able to tell the difference between the wicked one and the righteous one? The righteous ones are the ones who have faith. They're the ones who still believe. The ones who, in spite of their circumstances, who even when everyone else seems to be packing it in, the ones who maintain their faith, their hope, their trust in God. Those are the ones who are revealing themselves to be righteous, Habakkuk. The circumstances in which Judah had found themselves, sliding into sin and wickedness internally, staring down the barrel of oppression and exile externally, these are actually just the crucible in which the faithful of God, the righteous ones, are going to be revealed. And that's how these things tend to work. You know exactly where you stand when things start to get hard. William Tyndale, a man who died for translating the Bible into English, whose translation actually formed the basis for what would become the King James Bible. He spoke of this phenomenon when he said, How should I know that I loved God if I never suffered for his sake? How should I know that God loved me if there were no infirmity, temptation, peril, and jeopardy whence God should deliver me? Do you see what he's saying there? The only way for the righteous ones to be revealed, for us to know 
that we actually believe this deep down is to endure through the persecution, to endure through the pain, to endure through the circumstances. And likewise, the only way for us to really know that God is and will be faithful to us is to see him remain faithful, to see him keeping his promises, even through circumstances as bad as what Habakkuk is about to go through. So when you're in that place that Habakkuk has been, I hope that that idea, that thought can help you through it. When the diagnosis comes back, when the divorce papers arrive, when the bank account runs dry, when you get thrown in jail for sharing your faith, I hope you can remember that truth. Steadfast faith and love are revealed in the hardest of times. Both yours for him and actually his for you. And the only way to really know, the only way to really experience it, is to see it through all the way. That's the proof of who are the righteous ones. But that same faith is also the basis for their righteousness. That's the clue we really get when Paul picks up this phrase and makes it central to his argument in the book of Romans. That the righteous are only righteous because they have faith. Not because they're righteous in and of themselves. Paul's laying out an argument for how sinful people could possibly stand before a holy God. And you see, that's a problem. Because when you have to stand before God, you have to match the same righteousness that he has. And as humans, we simply can't do it. If you're going to dwell with him, you have to match his same righteousness. And sinful people cannot do that. And yet Paul is saying that people have been saved. So he has to figure out, how does this work? How do unrighteous people, by nature, receive the righteousness of God and able to be able to stand before him? Paul says that's actually what the gospel is. That's how we have it. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 say this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel, which is the power of God to save those who don't deserve it, is salvation for all who, what? Believe. For through that gospel of belief, not that gospel of works, not that gospel of only the people who are already righteous to begin with, Through that gospel of belief, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is given from, for, and by faith. So Paul is saying that the righteous actually become righteous, not by their own power, not by their own works, but rather by God giving or imputing his own righteous perfection to them through their faith. So when we say that the righteous shall live by his faith, what we're really saying in some sense is that the ones who through their faith have received the righteousness of Christ shall through that same righteousness receive life from God rather than death, which is evidenced in the faith that they still have that God will be faithful to do these things. So God's faithfulness is the foundation for everything. 
for your salvation, for life rather than death, and your faith in his faithfulness, that counts you among the righteous ones who receive that life. And the proud man doesn't have that. He has no faith in the faithfulness of God and the sacrifice of Christ on his behalf because he has faith in himself. But if you are among the righteous, your faith, your belief, is utterly outside of yourself so that you can receive that which is also utterly outside of yourself. But really, the the aim and focus of what God is saying to Habakkuk here, it isn't primarily to help the prophet understand God's faithfulness. It's not primarily to understand the finer points of justification by faith alone. God is saying this to his people so that they might live by faith. So that they might be encouraged through the persecution. Not merely to continue in life. To exist by the faith that they once previously held to. But rather to live moment by moment. To abide in faith moment by moment. To rest Every second, trusting that the God who is faithful will be faithful to them. So we do need to know the facts of our salvation. We do need to know some of the finer points about how all that works. Absolutely. But maybe the most comforting, the most helpful piece of this phrase in this text is the idea that God is telling his people to hold on just a little bit longer. He knows what's coming. He knows the pain and the exile that's about to happen at the hands of the Babylonians. But he also knows what's coming on the other side of that. He knows his justice. The coming righteous one. The fruits of their salvation by faith. All of that is waiting for them on the other side of what they're about to go through. In the midst of the storm, he is telling them that they don't have to understand everything. They don't have to earn his blessing back in their own power. That's what the proud man would try to do. That's not what they do. As hard as it may seem, as hard as their life may be, all they really have to do is trust, to live and abide moment by moment in faith. And that's how they'll live through the judgment that is to come. And when we do that, when we have that kind of moment-by-moment faith, we're able to actually experience the life that he is giving us even now. That kind of living, that kind of abiding, that's real life. That's true life. The proud man, he never has his rest because he can't simply trust in something outside of himself to save him. He has no life. He has only the dogged existence of a scavenger going from the scraps of one carcass to the next. He's cursed. That's what Paul's trying to to get across when he picks up this phrase that the righteous shall live by faith again in Galatians chapter 3. It says this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. According to Paul here, 
just like in our text today, you have two options. You can live a cursed life under the law, trusting in your own power and righteousness for your salvation. And therefore, you are living as doomed because you are utterly incapable of keeping the entire law of God perfectly every second of every day. Not even to to mention the sinful nature that you've inherited just by being born. Okay, so that's option one. It's cursed. Leads to death. I wouldn't really recommend option one. But there's also option two. You can live a life free from the curse of the law and its punishments. You can live a life trusting in the one who bore that curse for you and in your place for your salvation. And therefore, you can live that life as righteous because you've been given his righteousness, which now allows you to live by faith every second of every day until that faith is eventually made sight. That is the righteous living by faith. And that's not really a contest, is it? I mean, one has no basis. It lives in pain and despair. It dies, and then somehow things get worse. The other one lives in faith and hope. It never experiences a real death. It doesn't even taste death, and then dwells in life with God forever. And when we put it like that, that those are your options, it sounds so easy, doesn't it? It sounds so obvious, doesn't it? But in our real world, in our real lives, we know it feels harder than that sometimes. It doesn't always feel as simple as those two options. Our sinful desires and the flesh that we still live in, they seem to win the day sometimes within us. So we have to endure. We have to continue living by faith, moment by moment. Persevering in the faith until we who are righteous by faith receive the fullness of the life that we've been promised. The real, the everlasting, the imperishable, eternal life. That we've been promised. That's actually what the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us toward when he takes up this same verse. That the righteous shall live by faith. When he says that in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 36 to 39. He says this. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God. You may receive what is promised. For yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hebrews here is encouraging us to endure. To persevere in faith. To continue living by our faith. This morning we've been shown two diverging paths with two diverging fates. And I think the encouragement here is clear. Be counted among the righteous who live by faith. Don't live like the proud man whose way only ends in death. Submit your pride. Submit your sin before the God who loves you 
and gave himself for you. That through your faith in who he is and what he's done on your behalf, you might receive his life as you receive his righteousness. The life we've been promised is coming. It will not delay. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. But in the waiting, live by faith, trusting and hoping day by day that the one who has promised is faithful to give his righteousness and therefore his life to all who believe. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That's how we live in the midst of evil. That's what the book of Habakkuk is about. It's about how to understand and think about God in the midst of the evil which surrounds us. And he is telling us the way that you continue going, the way that you live in the midst of that evil, is by faith. Not as the proud man whose way ends in death, but as the faithful whose way ends in life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to to gather together with your people, to read your word, to pray your prayers, to sing your gospel, and to hear your word preached. Help for us to worship in the midst of all that is going on around us. Help for us to be people who can come to the end of ourselves and lay our pride aside. To be people who don't live as the proud man whose way ends in death. That we might not be so easily deceived. That we might not trust in our own self, our own self-righteousness. That we might not meet those same ends. But rather, let us be the righteous ones who are righteous and live by our faith. Help for that faith to be an imperishable faith, a faith that doesn't waver, a faith that doesn't leave, a faith which only grows, even in the midst of temptation, even in the midst of terrible trials. Help for us to trust that in the midst of that, that's how we actually know that you love us and how we actually know that we love you. Help for us to be people who live by faith moment by moment. Continuing to rest and trust and to hope that you who promised are faithful. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.